welcome to our second book lunch. Um, that's the theme song, which is sort of almost, I almost have the theme song. Um, that's about, as close as, close as I'm going to get to one. Um, today, um, I got to get some things uh, organized here. I hope the sound is good and everybody can hear everything. Um, today we're going to discuss uh, a book that's, um, I'm trying to find, they're always trying to find the right word and it takes time. You know, I don't like to just babble or, or, or you know, I'm speaking extemporaneously and spontaneously by virtue of what I'm doing, but it's a but coming. Even be that as it may, I like to sort of choose my words with some care. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to find a way to talk about Nathalie Legere. I hope I'm hope I'm doing justice to her name. Nathalie, Nathalie Legere book, Sweet for Barbara Loden. Now, there's so much to get into. I fear that this particular book lunch will be a long lunch. And so um, I hope that uh, you, you go along on this particular journey with me, uh, relatively unafraid and open to what I'm going to talk about. Yes. So here's the thing. Um, Cinema. So this may, and I produce a lawyer will know the answer to this. Is my blog post going up on May 2nd, which would be Monday? She would know. But I think May 2nd, I'm releasing this long love um, ode, ode to cinema. And I'm really proud of it. I wrote it some time ago. I wrote it in a very unusual time in my life. It was a time in which one of my last years living in Boston. So it was a time in which I was watching uh, a maximum amount of movies. It was, so it was that peak period. I was seeing maybe four or five movies a week, roughly, say somewhere between four. And they were all good. I wasn't watching crap. It was like really enriching movies. And I was thinking deeply about them. And this is a long way of, uh, of talking about the 70s book I'm writing, which, which Wanda figures a lot in. We'll get to that. But, you know, and I, I thought, you know, I don't want, I don't want the reader of this, this poem or this piece of prose I wrote to get the idea that I left out things on purpose that I like. There's a lot in here, but there's also a lot of things I'm crazy about I don't even mention. You can't, you know, there's so much to cinema, so much to movies, film that you have to leave some things out that are that you love. And so it's not everything's in there, but a lot of my favorites are in there, directors, you know, like Jacques Rivette and Bresson and exploitation films from the 70s are in there and major sex symbols are in there, like Claudia Jennings, and, um, the Marx Brothers, and there's also MGM musicals. And so there's, there's enough in there um, to get a sense of how I relate to cinema. Um, and I, I, I talk, I'm talking at great length about this piece only because how did, so it's a good idea to talk about, first of all, um, somebody will ask you, like if, if somebody, if somebody named Gus or Jane was here, 
let's just say, imagine, let's imagine a person named Gus and you can put a microphone and say, Gus, when did you see E.T.? Or when did you, if you did see E.T. or Jaws, or when did you see Titanic and how many times, you know, or something. Just move, I'm just picking random movies out of a hat, like a rabbit magician. I'm a magician pointing random. There's no significance to those titles. And they would say, well, you know, I was, I was at uh, the low Cineplex and I saw Titanic and I was on a date or something. And they might say they were with their family watching E.T. or something. Um, and, you know, um, I'm going to say that now. So I first saw Wanda rather late in life, actually. Now, this is interesting. It's a hard film to see. I wasn't able to really see the screenings that were available when they would pop up. This is sort of the era... I think largely before, well, I'm trying to think, I don't know if there was a good VHS copy at that time. It certainly wasn't a DV copy that was, I mean, I had, I got one of the early ones in the, in the early 2000s, I think that was available. It's not like I had this fancy, this fancy criterion edition, which is really, really great. I mean, I can't recommend that enough, this. but you know, it was before, it was actually before the movie, became like sort of a cult phenomenon. So I was an early adopter of Wanda. I was sort of, you know, I went to a screening in, in, a, in a class, an independent film class uh, that Ray Carney was teaching. And it was, I think it was like eight in the morning. And, you know, I would sit in on some of these classes only, only if the film is really interesting or important. And Ray says, you gotta see Wanda. So this must have been 1998, I think. And I went into this basement and and <laughs> I watched this film and I got to tell you, I thought this film was incredible. I mean, I didn't even know. So here's the thing. When you love something, secondarily, you know, the object of your love or what it is that you love is that's certainly important because that's what causes the love, you know? I mean, you're not loving nothingness, although I think there's a place for loving nothingness. That's a more of a spiritual discussion, but you know, we're talking about whether this book or this movie or a person, when you love something, it's kind of a challenge in a way to do it justice and, you know, to articulate why you love it or try to, or try to um, translate or express your love uh, so that it's infectious and another person can love it. I mean, the mother of the woman that wrote this book, Natalie Legere's mom said, why are you wasting your time on this depressing movie? I don't like that movie. Why are you writing a whole? And so a lot of people will respond to this this way. Now, here's the thing. One of the grand themes of my book on 70s cinema is that in artistic creation, there are different styles. They're all equally good. And again, when I, when I say there's these different styles, I'm not creating a hierarchy at all. And one style you could call conceptual or sort of masterful or classical. And that's where the work of art um, is about sort of expressing a very particular goal for the audience or for the reader. There's a clarity of expression and that some of the greatest things ever made fit into this category. They just, you know, there's not really a lot of um, ambiguity about what to take from the work. It's pretty clear, you know, the character of the, uh, sort of its representational and their characters. It's pretty clear whether this person is someone to root for or not. Uh, there's a clarity. And this is, of course, a lot of art is like this. And um, 
And, and it gets really even more complicated because to create a classical work of art like that is actually the hardest thing to do. It actually seems simple since classical art, and the, word, the phrase I'm using the word classical very differently, you know, I mean historical, I mean traditional. People often think, well, that's easy because, you know, you have a good guy and a bad guy and everybody knows what that is. And just like comedy, right? People think that that's easy. Actually, that's some of the hardest stuff to do. And people that, that practice traditional art forms will tell you, this is hard, you know, to do it well. So I'm just putting that out there. But I'm calling that that kind of art conceptual and that it's about it's about it's about aboutness. It's about the ideas of the world. Right. As opposed to perceptual or sort of raw experience. And in the 70s, starting in the 60s and the 70s, movies became about senses, about perceiving rather than comprehension. Comprehension is secondary. It's not about putting forth a particular idea. It's about the actual experience with this group of people in this particular moment. And when you see Wanda, you've seen a movie that was made of, with love by, again, this is a whole, you know, it's a movie, it's a bank heist movie and there's, there's crime in it and there's a robbery. And uh, it's about this, this uh, woman from Pennsylvania um, getting involved with a criminal and they become like sort of a Bonnie and Clyde um, sort of couple and they go around doing petty crimes and there's a lot of comedy and humor in their relationship because she calls him Mr. Dennis and he's very um, eccentric and, and, and you know, the repartee back and forth is a strange quality to, to their relationship that's, um, again, can't really be classified in an ordinary way. So Barbara Loden was up for the part of Faye Dunaway's part of, of Bonnie and Bonnie and Clyde in 68, 69, and did not get the role. Well, that role went to Faye Dunaway, of course. And so there's a sense in which this film, Wanda, is kind of her, I'm going to make my version of Bonnie and Clyde. It's thoroughly unclassical, meaning that, well, let me show you something here. We'll get to the book. Don't worry. I know this is a book lunch and people don't get all upset. I understand that books are important and we're going to talk about sentences and prose. I just, it's a book about a movie though and about a person that we worked in film. So, all right. Now, let's see here. What are we doing? This is a very bad transfer, you know, so bear with me, bear with me. I know, it's not supposed to. That's Wanda, that's Barbara Loden, that little, that dot in the landscape. Yeah, dog barking.
this is not like Bonnie and Clyde. I don't, I don't think there's a scene in Bonnie and any sequence like this. I love Bonnie and Clyde. Don't get me wrong. But that's another kind of movie. Um, so when we meet Wanda, the fictional character that Barbara, Lo who Barbara Logan plays, she's, um, in a bad job in a factory, has an abusive, but he's abusive, but also sort of preposterous boss. Um, she has to show up in court and her husband is just, just, just so the, but you know, it presents, so this is the interesting thing, like. Barbara Wilden presents these things that you recognize from classical film, court conflicts, so divorce court, but she presents them in a thoroughly, I would say, poetic, non-conceptual way. In other words, it's almost like she wants you, again, to have the experience of a thing without intellectualization. It's something, it's something akin to being in this moment, like right now we're having this, right now we're just, this is here, we're in this moment. Just like this, this, the scene I just showed you. And that's a whole tradition in radical art filmmaking that I deeply love. And I wish more people loved it like I do, but there we are. And she was into that stuff because around the time she made this film, she was checking out Warhol films and hanging out with Yoko Ono and very interested in all these things. And she put all those interests in this film. Also documentary filmmaking, Fred Wiseman, the Maisel's brothers. Um, that's a whole uh, tradition where the idea is to capture the souls of the people you were photographing or documenting. And that you don't want to interfere with them too much. You want to place your camera, plant your camera, and sort of be receptive to what's going on in your environment rather than manipulating it and so there's a lot of things coming together in Wanda. There's ideas about documentary filmmaking where you try to not interfere with your subjects, but respect them, respect their soul, actually. Very interesting. Her long career as an actor, respecting the space of the actors, very important in this film. Um, and all these different elements come together in a very special film. It's very unusual. You don't usually have films, you know, where all of these um, very actually disparate elements. I mean, they're artistic filmmakers who are not acting oriented at all. And there's some, you know, that's not their, their um, main, or they're not, they're not actors. And it's more about landscape or it's more about beauty or it's more about um, certain kinds of emotions or shots. Um, and then there are some films that are like Cassavetes, which is all about the actors doing their thing. And that's, the, that's, the, um, that's what's important in the film. In this film, it all comes together which is really incredible. So it's both an abstract film, uh, almost a visually abstract, almost non-narrative film. And at the same time, it's a thriller. It's sort of an action film. And at the same time, it's a, it's a drama of these two people that meet both lost souls that find each other. And again, this guy's not a good guy. This Mr. Dennis, but you know, he's not just a villain. That's the thing. See, that's what I love about this film. Like, she's not operating under the. Um, 
It's really hard to articulate, but again, you know who articulates it really well, much better than I can, is Natalie Legere in this book. So I don't know where to proceed. I want to talk about some things. Um, I guess I could read passages from the book. Um, now, this is really interesting. Now, she tried to do a lot of research, and she did do a lot of research, but there were a lot of obstacles. For example, her... Um, she wasn't able to get to journals. She wasn't able to get to archival material. She tried to do this. You know who was really helpful, though, was Fred Wiseman. The great filmmaker Fred Wiseman said to Natalie Legere, Natalie Legere, you have to talk to Mickey Mantle, the baseball player. Mickey Mantle, what's the connection? Well, at the end of this book, and again, still read the book. It's not that kind of book. I'm not giving, you know, it's a lot in here. Mickey Mantle was a fan of hers when she was a chorus dancer at the Copacabana in the 40s. So dig this. Barbara Loden, by the time she meets Wanda in 1970, had already been on Broadway, been a chorus dancer at the Copacabana in the 40s, and hung out with people like Mickey Mantle, the baseball player. So you could say that in a sense, when she makes this one movie, that she actually puts more... Um, I'm going to say something bold, that there's more wisdom about the world that goes into this one film than most people ever even have. And that's actually, I think that's why the film's so good. It's not the only reason, but I think that that, I don't know what, whether you want to call it uh, experience or kind of savvy, it all goes into this film. Even though it seems like a very minor film, even, even though it seems like a very um, uneventful film in many respects, right? So... I don't know, but Mickey Mantle, anyhow, uh, Natalie Legere talks to Mickey Mantle, and Mickey Mantle, there's this long digression where he says, well, you know, uh, I want to, um, I want to write, the, you know, my, these people are hassling me to write a memoir. And this is Mickey Mantle just a few years ago, right? This is like him, I don't know, he's in his 80s or something. He's like, everybody wants a sports bot, you know, memoir. And dig this, um, Mickey Mantle, you know, people want me to write about, you know, all my victories and all my girlfriends and my marriages. But you know what I'm interested in? I want to write about the science of the baseball moving through space. I want to write about that. But my editor doesn't want me to get it. And this gets even more interesting. You know who Mickey Mantle was reading to learn how to write? He was reading Proust. Mickey Mantle. Probably never read anything like that before in the 30s and 40s when it was coming up. But he says, you know, I discovered this guy, Proust. And so you imagine, imagine that. How many sports legends, you know, are, are trying to, are getting tips on how to write their celebrity bio from reading like Proust? See, this is the, this is the thing. See, uh, the arts is funny. It's like, um, it's just funny. I don't know. That's why I have this podcast is things like that, right? So I don't really know. There's a lot of passages in. So she she was supposed to write like a, a um, what do you what you would call those things where you write a biographical? They had those indexes and those encyclopedias where you have the name of Barbara Loden. She was supposed to write one of those things, like a summary. And the stuff she was turning in was too abstract or far out. And the, you know, the editor was getting frustrated with Natalie Legere and saying, leave out all this stuff. And so she gets the idea. She's being blocked from certain information. Why don't I write a personal book about my love for this particular film with which she is obsessed? 
and this actress, right, Barbara Lawton. And the result of um, all of these things coming together is this wonderful book. But anyhow, there are passages in this book that sort of read a little bit like, you know, a biographical encyclopedia entry, right? So, but she, here's how she distorts it. She goes a little, I find out that when she was 15, Barbara Loden could have been crowned Miss Black Mountain, Miss Patriotic Bikini, a Princess Boondock. Why not? She always said that North Carolina, where she was born, was hillbilly country. She escaped from there when she ran off to join Robert Brown's Science Circus, where she earned $3 a show doing acrobatics to demonstrate simple laws of applied physics. She arrived in New York in 1949, 17 years old, and already quite knowing when it came to men. As Candy Loden, that was her name originally, I think, Candy Loden. She posed, oh, well, her stage name for, for these. She posed for photo novellas in women's magazines. Here she is on the cover of Photorama, illustrating the story, Where to Find a Girl, in the classic pose of the 1950s pinup girl wearing a bathing suit, her hair a luxuriant blonde mane, her legs folded beneath her, looking directly at the camera with a knowing smile though we can be quite sure that this knowing look conceals its opposite the not knowing anything at all. It's the same pose that Marilyn Monroe holds without the bathing suit in the photographs that Tom Kelly took for a calendar in 1949. Now, um, this question of not knowing, I talked about concepts. Concepts is like knowing. And so this idea, and I think there's, I think there's a connection here. The idea of doing things without knowing them, or doing things in order to discover something unknown, I think there's, I think there's something to that. Um, and also her rich life experience, you know. And so she, she does Arthur Miller's After the Fall, playing a character Maggie who is patterned after Marilyn Monroe. And so I found out here in this great Susan Sontag book. Sontag, of course, gives a bad review to Elia Kazan and Arthur Miller's After the Fall and is not too kind to Barbara Loden, too. She says here, uh, what does she say? Um, One is jarred again at the sight of Barbara Loden made up like Marilyn Monroe displaying the mannerisms of Monroe and bearing a certain physical resemblance to Monroe, though lacking the fullness of figure needed to complete the illusion. But perhaps the most appalling combination of reality and play lies in the fact that After the Fall is directed by Elia Kazan, well known to be the model for the colleague who named names before the Committee of House of Un-American Activities. Now that gets into a whole thing about the 50s and McCarthyism and, and Susan Sontag is um, referencing that partly to, uh, to um, this is complicated because we're dealing with the 50s, the 60s. Now I would have given, I was born too late. I would have given anything to see that production of After the Fall in 1964. If you get me my time machine, I want to go back and watch that production as flawed as it is. And 
even though Susan Sontag takes the producers of the, of the play to task for not casting somebody, I don't know, casting somebody with um, Barbara Loden's particular physique, et cetera, on and on and on. I don't care about any of that. I love Susan Sontag, but I don't even care really what she thinks. I just think it's interesting, you know, the kind of the, um, the juxtaposition of all these things. And, you know, um, <clears throat> I'm left to thinking about this book, you know, to write a book about a movie like that, um, you know, or to write a book about a movie in the idiosyncratic way in which Natalie Legere writes a book about the is, um, well, I sort of think ideally all, so wouldn't it be interesting if every biography was like this biography? I mean, of course you could carry it too far. I mean, I get, I get it. You need like a, you know, you need a sort of a reference book. Although this is actually good as a reference. There's a lot of facts in here. But, but I just wanna, there's, there's a lot of passages where, um, uh, I'm trying to find this one here. Um, she traces all the steps of the movie. So she, she does reporting in the United States, leaves France and goes to Pennsylvania and tries to recreate the locations that were used in the film Wanda, which is a very interesting thing to do. And there's a passage here where she talks about, um, um, She talks, she talks about um, GPS and the use of GPS because this book was written at, this book was written at a time when GPS was first being used and how she doesn't like the fact that you can't get lost. Like she wants to get lost. Natalie Legere, like Mitch Hampton, like me, wants to sometimes get a little bit lost and not know everything and not pre-plan everything and create some suspense and and not reduce everything down to like a good guy or a bad guy, you know, and these kinds of very, um, these very, uh, you know, just kind of just, you know, the actual territory and not the map. And so she talks about that a little bit. So this is very interesting. She says here, um, um, In Carbondale, I asked one of the waitresses at the diner where I had stopped by for the evening how the mines work. That's mining country where this film takes place, and that's why. So, how they work. Looking apologetic, she beat a retreat toward the kitchen, disappeared, and like in the theater, another waitress simultaneously appeared and walked straight toward me, wiping her hands and offering only a sallow, smiling profile with the wordless invitation to pick up the conversation where it had been left off. She was older, she ought to know. Her daughter worked in the mines. In an office further south near Frackville, she sat down opposite me and patiently explained how, when the over, uh, overburdens are not too thick, the mine can be exploited by open cast mining. She spoke slowly, gesturing with her hands. You dig, you shovel, you sift, you extract. Sometimes you use dynamite. You shove some more, and each new layer of coal, each new seam is uncovered, excavated, sifted, and shoveled aside, fashioning an itinerant landscape on the vast, devastated terrain. 
That's what I understood. The landscape is constantly being unmade in one place and reconstructed in another. And once the seam is exhausted, it gets filled in with the waste that once formed a high, dark embankment and is abandoned for another mine. I asked whether it'd be possible further to be no trace of a former pit. <laughs> Laughing, she answered, almost cried out, thank goodness, yes. Sky, the ocean floor, the outline of land masses, rock, water, steam, the earth's gravity field, lines, measurements, a shape, a time, what experts call the figure of the earth. I don't want to know anymore. I allow myself to be guided. I don't understand the organized collusion of data. Transformed into electromagnetic waves that come crashing methodically, mathematically into the rental car's black box to dictate my itinerary. I've muted the sound heading into this unknown country. I rely only on the image of the infinite ribbon unspooling on the GPS screen. No obstacles, a marvelous illusory continuity, the perfect representation of stupidity, what others might call an acceptable representation of reality. The magic box, the mechanic had told me. I had heard that GPS is altering our perception of our position in space and the way we travel from place to place. The very notion of an itinerary is problematic nowadays. Some people go so far as to believe that everything, including time and emotions, can be localized. It seems to become increasingly difficult to accept that we don't always know exactly where we are. And by extension, it is becoming increasingly difficult to know exactly where we are. Now that's an incredible passage. Now this is a this is a book about a movie, and that passage is just like um, see that's that to me is the sign of a really really deep writer is that you take you know you take these elements like a woman's life and a movie you love and and you know there's an opportunity to go to this other place and she does it you know there's there's um to bring it more back down to earth or or uh, uh, let's see here. Just so much here. I beg the audience's uh, patience because I am. Um, this is kind of an in, uh, kind of an interesting. Um, interesting thing because there's um there's also a lot of stuff in this book about being a woman, and she talks about her life as a woman, and a writer, and her mother, and. And of course, Barbara Lode, and it's just beautiful. And it go, and it, but it doesn't. There's just so much here. Again, this is a tiny little book. I purposely chose a book uh, totally contrary to Blake Gottman's Warhol, yet the same time period, the same some of the same milieu is overlap. But you know, that was a big book. It's a little book, but but for a little book, this is <laughs> this is like this is almost like a thousand page book. There's a lot in here. Here we go. Barbara Loden said that she had no grand story to tell. No wind of history. 
none of the political turmoil of the times, nothing illustrative of any social drama, poverty perhaps, but not destitution. <clears throat> violence, yes, but the acceptable face of violence, the kind of banal cruelty enacted within the family. That was all she said. Her own story, enmeshed in this one, is probably no more than the ordinary story of a lonely, unloved child, a child who had been silenced, forced to submit to someone stronger than they are, the kind of sadness that it is not easy to get over, a commonplace story. This is the only reason Barbara made films, to soothe, to heal the pain, assuage the humiliation, process the fear. Quote, this is Barbara Loden's quote, Wanda's character is based on my own life and on my own character and also on the way I understand other people's lives. Everything comes from my own experience. Everything I do is me. Unquote. Um, so I guess to read this book, you have to have seen the movie. I guess, and I think, um, but then again, you know, yes, I guess, <laughs> I guess, you know, you could, you could, you could read the book. I don't know, what would, what would this book read like? I mean, actually, there's so much in here about Mickey Mantle and about baseball and not baseball, but about, about, about um, you know, the politics of Hollywood and Eli Kazan's life. There's actually a lot in here you can actually read and sort of enjoy, but there's a, there's a lot of, um, reconstructions of scenes from the film. Almost like, a, almost like she summarizes what's happening on screen and she does it in her, in her poetic way. So, you know, I, I don't know if I made myself clear when I talk about perception and conception and it might sound a little, ironically, itself very conceptual and abstract, but it's a very basic thing. And I sort of feel like that in this movie, Wanda, Michael Higgins and Barbara Loden get into this stuff as actors. And she never edits it. She just leaves it all in. There's this passage in the film where they discover model airplanes and they look up at the sky and there's these beautiful airplanes and just like everything stops and they're hanging out in this car. And it's a lot of, I mean, the film is just a series of these kinds of, um, you know, these passages. And, and, you know, it's actually, I would say the movie's about that. I would say if one is about anything other than, of course, the plight of its character, Wanda, um, it's about, I think, uh, the, the primacy of immediate raw experience in the senses. And in addition to that, that every human being matters. It's implicit in the film. The way that there's, 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 a, there's a scene um, where, where there's a scene towards the end where they're in a bar and it shows all the people in the bar. There's a kind of um, kind of a democratic uh, majesty about that. And so in essence, you know, Barbara Loden in an interview at AFI says it's a crude film. She calls her film crude by the standards of Hollywood, you know, technical um, brilliance, you know, classical brilliance. She says it's crude. I'm aware it's crude. She says it's like Warhol. She compares herself to Warhol. 
But I think that his crudeness is beautiful. And I actually think, I talk a lot about the quotidian. And again, this, this style of film, um, the idea of every life mattering, the idea of the moment mattering, is, is still, I think, even in 2022, uh, even though it's starting to become more uh, mainstream and accepted by a larger audience, thankfully, and there's a more openness to this idea, it's still a very radical idea because our culture in general is committed to, to the dramatic or, or um, as being the only thing that matters or the thing that, that's the loudest, you know, or the thing that um, commands the most attention. And it's actually, uh, but I don't want to get into all that now, but I love this book and I kind of make, a, uh, make an idea here that uh, it'd be interesting to see books about subjects in the world more like this book. And so this is book is why I changed direction in my seventh book. It's gonna to be totally different because, so I have her, Natalie Jared, to thank for giving me the idea. Wouldn't it be interesting if I write a book about all the movies of the seventies, but using, using her approach, what do you think? You think that's a good idea? So this book inspired me in a very direct and a very, um, <clears throat> a very, um, what's the word, uh, immediate way. So that's it for this book lunch. It took a lot out of me because this movie is, takes a lot out of you. And those passages about Barbara Loden's life and about, you know, are, are serious. And, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they, um, you know, they're, they're, um, but they're important and, and it's beautiful. And that's what art is about. Art is taking all these things that seem disconnected, you know, growing up in Black Mountain or, being in a beauty pageant or working at the Copacabana and being in a play on Broadway or whatever, or working in television, all these things. And that's kind of like the raw material, right? It's like a chord or a scale and you take it all and you put it all together and then you put all these disparate things in 